I'm a political analyst and columnist, Danielle Moody. And I'm writer with Jahat Ali. And we've come together to lead you away from the lies and out of the gaslight. This, this is, is Democracy Ish. Absolutely very excited to speak with the host of the Mary Trump show, Mary Trump. This is the Republican Party. There's There aren't different wings of it anymore. The entirety of the Republican Party is a white supremacist, fascist party. Brian, Tyler, Cohen. People are focused on the attacks on democracy. It, they understand that this extremism is leading to further attacks and further erosions of rights. We discuss the serious issues and threats that face our nation. Join us on Democracy-ish everywhere you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hi, I'm Ravi Agarwal, Foreign Policy's Editor-in-Chief. This is FP Live. Welcome to the show. Last month, when news emerged that the American economy grew by 2.4% in the second quarter of 2023, U.S. President Joe Biden responded by saying that the results were quote, Bidenomics in action. Biden has reason to be pleased. Apart from the faster-than-expected growth, inflation has begun to cool and the chance of a recession this year has declined. Now, Bidenomics is rooted in a belief that the best way to grow the economy is from the middle out and the bottom up. You'll hear his team use that phrase a lot. But Bidenomics has also been a sweeping foray into industrial policy and protectionism, with the administration prioritizing domestic manufacturing and bringing jobs back home. According to Biden's top advisors, unfettered globalization and subsidies for big companies have led to a hollowing out of the American industrial base. Bidenomics is meant to be a correction, but there are important critiques of that approach as well that subsidies for industrial policy can often encourage inefficiency and even corruption, that self-sufficiency might be a myth, and that protectionism will hurt global trade and smaller countries. And on top of that, finally, is Bidenomics trying to do too many things at once. In other words, if you want to build a semiconductor plant, just build it instead of tying it to all kinds of other priorities. Now, I'm not saying I agree with all of those critiques, but it is important to engage with them. And that's exactly what I did this week with Heather Boucher, one of the primary intellectual architects of Biden's economic policy. Boucher is a member of the President's Council of Economic Advisors and Chief Economist of the White House's Investing in America Cabinet. As always, FP subscribers get to send in questions that frame these discussions. You can do that too by signing up on foreignpolicy.com. And once you're there, you'll see that I'm doing an Ask Me Anything soon. So send in your questions for things you'd like me to address. You can do that on the site or by emailing us at podcasts at foreignpolicy.com. You know you want to. Once again, that's podcasts at foreignpolicy.com. All right, let's get started. Heather, thanks for joining me. Oh, my pleasure, Ravi. It's great to be here today. 
Really great to have you on. So let's start with the U.S. economy. Second quarter growth of 2.4% is impressive. Polls show, however, that Americans still aren't that impressed. A real clear politics average of polls shows that 38% of Americans approve of Biden's economic mismanagement, whereas 58% disapprove. Why do you think that's the case? Well, you know, for me, it always starts at this point still with the global pandemic. Right. We had this historic thing that upended our economy and it upended our lives. And while um, we have moved so far past that, we have recovered from the recession that was caused by the pandemic and the policies that we needed to you know, have everybody stay home for a while so that we could all be safe. But, you know, there were a bunch of um, things that happened from that. And I think that was both hard on families. It led to a lot of adjustment. And of course, it was the um, it was when we started the inflation that has affected consumers all around the United States, but of course, also all around the world. And so when I think when you put all that together, we are so much further than where we had been. And this economic recovery from that recession has been the most remarkable economic recovery in my lifetime and certainly in my career. We've created jobs faster. We have seen that um, the United States economic growth has been faster than our economic competitors. The pace of inflation is um, slowing down faster than many of our economic competitors. And all of that from the economic standpoint really are strong indications that what we did was um, good for our economy and you know has led to positive outcomes. But I think some of the challenges and stresses families are still uh, working their ways through. And certainly, you know, as the president uh, reminds us regularly, prices remain too high. We continue to do everything we can on our part, you know, to lower those costs facing families. It's why the president has prioritized things like getting prescription drug prices down or dealing with things like junk fees. But the reality is, is that we have an unemployment rate that is um, been at lows we haven't seen in over 50 years and has stayed there for quite some time. We've seen people coming back into the labor force. We've seen GDP that you know, beat expectations and the advance estimate for the second quarter. We're seeing inflation come back down to um, places where it hadn't been since 2021. And all of this is really positive economic news. If I'm hearing you correctly, part of the lag between economic performance and how people really feel is partly because inflation has been cooling, but it's still fairly high, probably higher than wage growth right now. What is your sense of the trajectory of inflation over the next few months? And given your assessment of that, um, how much are you worried about a price shock, whether it's from the global food market or the global oil market? Well, I'm an economist who works for the president. I'm always worried about a lot of things and price shocks are almost always on my mind. And we're going to talk about this when we talk about Bidenomics. But, you know, as we think about the challenges of building a clean energy economy, I think we have to be thinking about all of the different supply side challenges that that might bring for us. So we are thinking about all of those different prices and what that could mean. We have been seeing steady progress in the annual rate of inflation slowing back down. There's going to be some challenges with what economists call the base effects because we're, we're now past that peak that we had seen a year ago in June. So that may make some of the numbers um, not, we may not see the same kind of annual pace. But when you look over the past one month, three months, six months, you are seeing this pace coming down. Um, given what we've seen on producer prices, uh, that gives me optimism that we will see those flowing through the economy um, to consumers as well. Uh, but time will tell. And we always get new data. And so we don't want to prejudge it. 
But I think what is really important for people to hear and understand is that we've come down from a peak of just over 9% a little over a year ago to the 3% CPI that we saw in the last um, read of it. And that certainly is progress for American families and American communities and American consumers. So let me ask you a broader question. How would you define Bidenomics? Well, the way that the president talks about it, um, there are three pillars. But let me start with the punchline, which you already noted. You know, the president's mission, um, as he has articulated it from campaign to the transition to governing, has been to build an economy from the middle out and bottom up and make sure that this economy benefits American families all across the country and particularly grows, strengthens Americans' middle class. That feeling of economic security, that um, that ability to be able to go out and feed your family, you know, get a job, feed your family. You know, the vast majority of Americans get the vast majority of their income from holding down a job. And that has been um, the president's priority from day one. Bidenomics has three pillars. First, is investing in America. And there's a lot of different ways that we're doing that, both through um, ramping up America's infrastructure, making it you know, fit our 21st century needs. This is something that has long been talked about on both sides of the aisle. And the president was able in a bipartisan way, get new um, investments in infrastructure across the finish line. Along with that, making investments in the cutting edge technologies and critically in building a clean energy economy. Those are the priority industries that, that, that we need to build the kind of economy that it's going to serve Americans today and far into the future. When we think about the needs of the clean energy economy, you know, we've seen this summer, um, you know, the, 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 I'm looking out the window, you know, the, the heat waves that have gone on across the country. We've seen the smoke coming down from fires in Canada here on the East Coast that, you know, of course, are all exacerbated by climate change and the global warming. But we know that the challenge here is how to build that new clean energy economy that can serve people, serve families, serve communities. And right now, um, you know, certainly pre the Inflation Reduction Act, we knew that clean energy either didn't exist or is too expensive. And so we've taken serious steps through the Investing in America agenda to address the, um, the needs of clean energy on the supply side and the demand side across the innovation and commercialization pipeline. So that's the first pillar. The second pillar is in empowering and educating workers and making it clear that you know, people um, have the opportunity to join a union, that they um, have access to good jobs. It's why so many of our policies include things like um, encouraging prevailing wages or apprenticeships. It's why the president has focused on things around um, education and making sure that workers have the skills that they need to take the jobs of the future. This is the most pro-union president in my lifetime. Mm -hmm focusing on the fact that workers need to have that ability to make their voices heard. And then the third pillar of Bidenomics is making sure that we have fair competition. And, um, you know, I often think that this one is a little bit overlooked in its um, overall importance, but it is certainly a, a monumental part of the economic three pillars here. Now, we know that over the past um, half century, in the mar markets in the United States have been um, more concentrated. And that has effects not just on um, big businesses or medium-sized businesses that are trying to compete, 
It affects the ability of new entrants into um, a market, uh, and it affects uh, workers and their wages and the kinds of labor markets that they are competing in. And so the president's agenda around competition has been a whole of government approach. Um, the first executive order that he did on this in 2021 had over 72 different specific actions that agencies were taking across the administration to promote fair and open competition. Everything from making it possible for hearing aids to be bought over the counter, which makes them cheaper and more accessible, to the work that we um, did around ocean shipping and the fact that that has been, um, you know, really concentrated in a small number of shippers. So there's a wide variety of things that the administration has done there, and you know, certainly an important plank. It is important to recognize that that is connected to both of the other two pillars. Right, is connected to empowering workers, having um, different businesses that you can work for in an industry is you know one way that workers are able to uh, use their power to compete over wages. It also makes sure that if you didn't get along with one employer, you have options, right? You can that concentration has real impacts on workers' wages and job quality. And at the same time, we're thinking about all of these things around how we are shaping markets as we are implementing the Invest in America agenda. So mm. it goes on both sides. It's really rethinking of the supply side. You know, Janet Yellen has talked a lot about how this is a modern supply side agenda, and you can see that in the pillars and you can see that in the president's focus. Um, thank you for that very detailed um, summary of Bidenomics. I want to get into a few of the critiques uh, of Bidenomics in a moment. But first, there's some new polling out from CBS News uh, conducted by YouGov that points out that half the country thinks the term Bidenomics um, includes tax increases, despite the fact that no such increases have been implemented. Do you think that there's a perception problem uh, with Bidenomics uh, on the campaign trail, at least? Well, so I don't work for the campaign, so I can't speak to what's happening on the campaign trail. Um, but here's what I can tell you. You know, uh, the challenge of what this president has been doing from day one is that he came into office knowing that there were a series of economic crises in front of him and a series of long-standing challenges. Of course, we had the pandemic. Of course, we had the ensuing recession from that. But we also had a series of longer challenges. We learned and we all learned so clearly the fragility of US supply chains. Um, so making sure that the economy was more resilient. We knew that we had um, over half a century of rising economic inequality wages, income, wealth, across all metrics, and of course, lower economic mobility. So that was a second set of crises. And then of course, the challenges that were so important around racial equity and equity across place that have been, that, um, have been so important to the president. And then of course, the existential crisis of climate change. Hmm. Throughout dealing with these challenges, which is what Bidenomics is um, focused on doing. The president has been very, very clear. They would not raise taxes on anyone making less than $400,000 a year. That is a promise made. That is a promise that has been kept through multiple iterations of legislation and through multiple budgets at this point. What the president has focused on is taxing um, wealth and not work and making sure, and most importantly, that the IRS has the tools that they need to make sure that people who get their income, not through um, their paychecks, right? When you get a paycheck, there is an automatic way that your taxes are taken out. It's really difficult mm -hmm. to 
cheat the IRS or not be totally truthful on your income when it's just automatically taken out of your paycheck. But there's a lot of kinds of income that are disproportionately, vastly disproportionately that go to the very wealthiest people in our society that does not subject to those kinds of automatic taxation. And so therefore you need IRS staff to be able to enforce the law. But if I were to show you the chart of um, the amount of funding for the IRS enforcement, even going down and down and down, that mm. is priority of the president to make sure that we can do what is so important to our democracy, which is to make sure that we all play by the rules and that our tax system is fair. And if there's a law that says that you owe taxes, you have to pay it. Um, and that is where right. the president has focused his energies. So I think this is a good moment then to dive into some of the critiques from economists uh, when it comes to Bidenomics. And I'll start with uh, the writer Ezra Klein's memorable an analogy of an everything bagel, which I, I think you later tweeted a picture of. But basically, the critique is that the Biden administration is trying to do too much. So the CHIPS Act, which is about semiconductors, for example, has riders that force companies receiving incentives to build daycare facilities near manufacturing sites. Applicants are also encouraged to offer transportation or housing assistance to employees. And I have to say, all of this is so admirable, but it drives up costs. It delays setup time. And the problem then is that the Department of Commerce hasn't yet doled out money to actually build chip fabs. So let me ask you this. Is Bidenomics trying to do too much? No, I don't think so. There's a few things. When a business makes a decision to invest, when they make a decision for you know uh, how they're going to act in the world, they're making a series of decisions. They're making decisions on where to locate. They're making decisions about their suppliers. They're making decisions about how they're going to engage in the environment. Are they going to make sure that they set up all the things that they need to do so there's no pollution? They're making decisions about HR, right? They're making decisions every day about who they're going to hire, how they're going to hire them, what kinds of rules there are, um, and how they're going to incentivize those to get the best employees that they need for their business. And for too long, we have allowed too many of what we as economists would call the negative externalities to just be negative externalities that nobody has to internalize. So, you know, a classic econ 101 negative externality is environmental degradation, right? We have the whole agency here in the federal government, the Environmental Protection Agency, that is devoted to making sure that somebody has to internalize those costs, right? Um, when we think about some of the human capital pieces, when you think about workers, making sure that it's the United States government backed by U.S. taxpayer money, is making investments in industries that are going to drive economic competitiveness and are important to the future of the country, both for national security and for economic security, making sure that you are that we are nudging them in the right directions to make decisions that are going to benefit communities and people and families as they are already making those decisions. That is what the Biden administration is focused on. So, but, but wouldn't it be more effective to separate those two things? So like you have a chip sack that focuses purely on building fabs and then a separate policy that incentivizes daycare and elder care and all the other worker rights that we know are necessary. But that's not the way the world works, right? You're setting up a chip fab. You're making all of these decisions um, as you're setting it up. So you want to get in at the ground floor. You want to make sure that those decisions are being made in the right direction and um, not leaving it all to just enforcement at the latter end, but making sure that proactively you're saying, these are our values. These are things that are important to the American people. These are the things that are important to communities. These are also things that, by the way, there's a long list of literature shows improve productivity and outcomes for those 
businesses. So you think about childcare, there's a lot of businesses that already do that, right? Because they know that making sure that their workers have access to care is imperative for their own bottom line. But here's the thing that we know when we talk to businesses, large and small, not everybody reads all of the economic and sociology and policy literature. So saying, hey, this is best in class practice. And so we're encouraging you to do that. That's what we're doing. We're helping um, you know, to push things in the right direction. So again, those businesses are going to make decisions anyway. But, are- I, but I don't think anyone's questioning the uh, intention here. I mean, everything you're saying is well-meaning. Uh, ultimately, it's almost impossible to disagree other than the fact that money hasn't really been dispersed yet. And so clearly this is slowing things down. That's, I don't think that is, I don't, I have not seen evidence that this is slowing things down. What I have seen in the data um, certainly is a massive spike in uh, the construction of manufacturing facilities across the the country, a spike that we haven't seen um, uh, anything like this in over 40 years. So that is an indication that businesses are out there. We put up these maps on invest.gov that show not only all the places where we are making investments in infrastructure, but all of the private sector investments that have been announced. And it is full of dots. Um, And I believe that there's dots in every state at this point um, for all kinds of investments that are happening. And we know that it takes time to go through these processes. We need to make sure that we're doing things right, that we're spending taxpayer dollar money in a way that is smart and sensible, but there is also an urgency. And I think it's actually been quite striking. In fact, there were a number of columns that I was reading over the past few days, noting how striking it is, how fast many of these investments are going relative to what people predicted just a year ago before the Chips and Science Act and the Inflation Reduction Act crossed the finish line. You will not find anybody um, that I know, at least here in this administration, who does not understand the imperative to move fast. Um, You know, we saw a semiconductor shortage during the pandemic that affected American consumers. It it is affecting national security. This is an imperative. And moreover, the building the clean energy economy is an absolute imperative to move as quickly as possible. And it has been an all hands on deck, everybody rowing in that direction. And you are listening to Foreign Policy Live. Remember, you can watch these conversations live and on video on our website, foreignpolicy.com. Subscribers get to send us questions in advance, in addition to a range of other benefits, including our magazine, of course. So sign up. Use the code FPLIVE for a discount. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. So let me put another critique to you. Uh, This one is from Adam Posen. It's directed 
uh, less at the CHIPS Act, more at the Inflation Reduction Act. And he, of course, wrote a cover essay for FP earlier this year. His take is that Bidenomics is essentially zero-sum economics. And he points out four fallacies, that self-dealing is smart, that self-sufficiency is attainable, that more subsidies are better, and that local production is what matters. And his point is that each of these assumptions are contradicted by recent economic history, and that while Bidenomics might be popular, clearly represents worthy causes, the underpinning economics will end up being self-defeating. What's your comeback? So two comebacks. The first one is, is that one of the imperatives of the Inflation Reduction Act is the historic investment that Congress, working with the president, have made in building a clean energy economy. And we know from the climate science folks that focus on what we need to do to transition away from carbon emission emitting fuels is that the amount of money that we invested through the Inflation Reduction Act over a decade, we need 10 to 15 times that amount globally every single year. And we also know that at least here in the United States, our efforts to deal with the challenge of climate change had previously fallen flat on their face. They didn't work, right? We have um, economists have been talking till they were blue in the face that we need a carbon tax. Nobody seemed to agree, didn't, didn't pass. We had um, a set of um, pushes legislatively around cap and trade, also did not get across the finish line. And our assessment of the challenge is that that is because actually building that clean energy economy isn't, is the kind of thing that exactly government needs to help to do. You think about the, um, the key sectors that we need to change with clean energy and transportation is a little bit under a third, followed by electricity and industry, which are about a quarter of the total of um, emissions. And then you think about agriculture and you think about um, uh, commercial and residential buildings, each of these has its own needs and its own challenges with making this transition. So we have crafted specific policies for each of those sectors that meet the need as quickly as possible from the innovation to commercialization pipeline. How are we gonna do it? So the subsidies aren't just subsidies because we like giving away money, they are to help industry and consumers on both the supply and the demand side make this historic transition as quickly as possible because the damage is already happening to the world around us. We can't wait. And we do know from a lot of economic research that the, a lot of these things can work and that specific target industrial strategies that help build an industry, not just one factory or one piece of the puzzle, but that but take that- Respectfully, if I may, just within that point, I think part of the critique is not industrial policy per se, but the protectionism part of it that, for example, with electric vehicles- 40% of components have to be manufactured in America. And I think by 2027, 80%. I think that's the critique, that it creates a world in which everyone is doing this game of industrial policy. Well, so two things on that. First of all, that's why I started with that investment number. We actually need massive investment, not just in the United States and globally. So let's so so when we talk about whether or not people are spending too much money on this, as far as um, you know, looking at the facts on the ground, that's not the problem. The problem is that we're not spending enough money on it and we're trying to induce that. So that's thing one. Thing two is that this administration um, has been so focused on making sure that we are working with our friends and allies and partners to bring everyone along, to make sure that as we are crafting and building this clean energy economy, we don't get into the challenges that we've seen with the fossil fuel economy. So one of the things is that OPEC, 
right, controls about 40% of the world's crude oil supply. Yet China has um, systemically been able to focus their attention on getting 100% um, control over core parts of the clean energy supply chain to the tune of 80 to 90%. And that is a monopoly. That makes that is risky for us. It's risky for our allies. It's risky for the future of building this clean energy transition. We need to make sure that there's an open and competitive landscape here. But you you have to start with the, the hand you're dealt. So we're trying to make sure that we're creating that diverse, resilient supply chain, not just here, but globally. We have done a ton of work focused on our friends and allies to make sure that we are doing that. Um, but we also do need to acknowledge that having... Um, one country dominate core parts of that supply chain has put us at risk. And you can see- This is China. Yeah. And that that's, that has put us at risk um, and it's made us vulnerable to how building this clean energy economy looks like over time. Um, and so let me just uh, allow you to continue a little bit with the, the counter to the critique um, that the kind of industrial policy that the U.S., is practicing can tend to backfire. And I think some of this also stems from criticism from our allies. I mean, you mentioned how part of the plan is to bring allies along, um, but Europe has been very critical of the IRA. I think countries uh, even in East Asia have been critical of the fact that you know their biggest companies are now incentivized to invest in America rather than in their own countries because of US subsidies. So. Doesn't that sort of go against some of what you're saying about working with allies? So I'm going to start again at the first principle here, which is that the United States took a historic step that the world had long asked us to do to build a clean energy economy. And we did it in the way that worked for us politically um, and that got across the finish line and that works for industry, right? And people and communities and families. So that was our number one priority. One of the exciting things is seeing other countries say, wow, we need to also take big, bold steps, because if we don't, we're going to be left perhaps behind economically with the U.S., but that's a second order question to the fact that we all need to be making these massive investments to build this clean energy economy. Second, we know that through making these investments um, from all the research on learning by doing and what we've seen in solar and in wind in recent decades, that this is going to lower the costs of clean energy not just for the United States, but around the world. So we're using our resources, our energy to say, we're gonna do this, we're gonna make this more affordable. Because if we think that the biggest problem with the transition, I mean, there's a number of problems. One are the network effects and you have to build the new systems. This isn't just like swapping out one energy source for another, it's building whole new systems, which again, requires a lot of public investment um, and a massive amounts of private investment. But um, you know, once you do that, that is going to help lower costs for these goods um, uh, around the world. So that is something that will be helpful to our friends and allies. Um, the other thing, of course, I will note is that there's a lot of different steps that we've taken to partner. Um, so you think about the critical and mineral agreements that we have forged with Japan and um, working on with the Europeans. I mean, these are about making sure that we all have access to the key uh, commodities that we're all going to need to create batteries and to build this clean energy economy. So making sure that we're creating that new global coalition of um, folks that you know want to make sure that as we pull these minerals out of the ground, we're doing so in a way that doesn't 
uh, cause undue damage to the environment, doesn't like add to our problems, and that also puts in place labor standards that are consistent with the way that we think that these processes can be done, making sure that we have stable, secure supplies of these minerals and working with our friends and allies to do that. I mean, that is certainly like one example of where we have been seeing progress. I want to channel um, a general question that people have written in with our subscribers and also that I often hear from diplomats in Asia when I travel around the world. And that is that, you know, when the rest of the world thinks of foreign policy for the middle class, which is uh, a buzzword um, for your administration and its policies, when they think of that phrase, what they often hear is a variant of Trump's America first. Um, and some of the, the protectionism we've been dis discussing right now. Um, how do you see that? So, you know, I think about a couple of things. Um, so first of all, the United States um, has some of the highest economic inequality of any developed economy. We've seen that rising um, in some years quite sharply over my entire life. And that is one of the most important economic trends in the United States. And you can go to a lot of conferences and convenings and hear a lot of people look at you quizzically and say, why do you have so much inequality? What is wrong with you? And what does that mean for your society, for your democracy, for your economy? So I think that, you know, one of the things as we've been thinking about this foreign policy for the middle class is acknowledging the reality on the ground in the United States. We remain one of the richest countries the world has ever seen. And yet we have very high infant mortality rates, particularly in lower income communities, particularly for black families, which is um, inexcusable given the enormous wealth that we have. We live in a country where we have high and growing mortality for um, people in their prime age years, those uh, people under the age of 40, that is way out of step with our economic competitors. So you have to ask yourself, what's what's wrong here, right? What's gone wrong? And there's a lot of things that have gone wrong, but I think on the foreign policy for the middle class specifically, it's saying, is this is the foreign policy that we're doing, is the way that we're thinking about trade benefiting American workers and American communities? Because that is the job of the federal government is to make sure that we're focused on the general welfare. And we have to start asking those questions and make sure that we're doing policy with an eye to whether or not it's going to lead to the economic security and, of course, the national security. But um, is it going to lead to the kinds of economy that's going to create good jobs for Americans all across the country? And I think a lot of people were surprised by the body of empirical research that was done looking at the effect of um, China jo joining the WTO that happened in the 2000s and what that did to communities and how long that tale was, right? I think that has been one of the striking things for economists was like, well, we knew that there would be an adjustment, you hear them say, um, but the fact that that adjustment is so long and that those communities in many, ca in, you know, many cases hadn't recovered, that's a real problem, right? You can't just leave wholesale communities behind. Now that does not mean, and we've said this a gazillion times, right? We are not looking um, to uh, you know, not do trade with China. We are looking to de-risk that relationship. Um, so I don't mean to uh, focus so much on that, but that as we are thinking about our trade policies, we have to think about what that means for American workers and American communities. And as we're thinking about moving forward, where is it? that we are going to need to be competitive? Where will economic security be grounded? 
And this administration has said, that's gonna be in these cutting edge technologies around semiconductors and the like, and it's going to be around building a clean energy uh, economy because that is where that economic uh, competitiveness and security is going to come from. And that's also, by the way, it's gonna create a lot of jobs. It's a very different kind of production than in um, fossil fuels. So that is what I think about. And so that's not saying that other countries also need to be thinking about what's happening to the people that live there and their livelihoods. Um, but we also need to make sure that we are delivering and 50 years of rising inequality is enough. Hmm. It is just enough. I hear you on all of that. Um, but since you mentioned China, um, I think it's fairly well documented that the Trump tariffs in China, which the Biden administration has kept in place, they haven't quite worked as planned. They haven't brought net jobs home. They've hurt certain sectors of the U.S. economy. Why not drop the tariffs? Well, so, I mean, my colleagues are working on that, certainly at USTR, are looking into those tariffs right now, and it's working its way through the process. You'll also note that I have not actually spent time talking to you about tariffs. I've been talking to you about the kinds of policies that are focused on the industries that will be important for economic competitiveness moving forward. Um, and, you know, I, I also think I'll use this moment in the conversation to note that the president also had other industries on that list. He focused a lot um, and has done what he can on the care sector uh, to make sure, because we know that, especially as we live in an aging society, um, that uh, the, the need for care and the need for workers to perform that is certainly an important piece of our economic security moving forward and making sure that we're giving those businesses what they need to succeed um, so that families can afford those services has also been a, a really important piece of the puzzle. Those are industry-based strategies that are not just about tariffs. They are about a whole host of other things we are doing on the supply and the demand side to make it easier for producers to produce clean energy and have um, the buildup of the networks that they need to succeed, like the EV charging network, which is so important with like new standards that are, you know, standards that are being adopted by um, the, the auto industry writ large, rather than a variety of different standards, which is not the way you wanna be building out a new economic system, as well as thinking about the demand side. How can we make these more mm. affordable for consumers? So this is a robust strategy. And I think that you can't be approaching a problem with just one you know, tool. Everything doesn't need a hammer. What you need to make sure that you are doing is um, fostering the kind of economy that is going to be delivering for the American people. I think underpinning a lot of what we've been discussing today is the idea and the notion of investing in America. And, and of course, um, you, you, you run the Invest in America cabinet. I guess my question then is, can America afford to keep investing uh, the budget deficit ballooned to 10% during the pandemic. I believe it's expected to average about 6% in the coming years. That That is six times higher than other developed economies seem to be comfortable with. And then you've got rising interest payments on the debt. How does all of that add up? Well, I think you know, the president has been very clear. So he has paid for the things that he has proposed, setting aside the emergency of the uh, pandemic and the American Rescue Plan. The, the fulsome agenda that he put forward was paid for, and that was always the case. Um, in his budget, it, he also has focused on reducing the deficit over time, um, and you can see that clearly in the numbers. So he completely understands that there cannot be spending without appropriate revenue, and therein lies the real question. 
which is the United States has been has spent decades, so happens the same decades that we saw rising economic inequality in lowering tax rates at the top and um, and not enforcing, as we've already talked about, the laws on the books, making sure that those at the very top of the income distribution, the wealth distribution, paid the, the taxes that they actually owe. So when we think about how we need to move forward, we need to think about the challenges in front of us and what resources we need and how we're going to get that. The president has focused on putting forth an agenda that would um, increase taxes at the very top of the income and wealth distribution he has committed to and has not wavered from. And I can tell you as one of his economic advisors, because sometimes you want to like, really? Um, but it has been very important to him that we do not do anything that would raise taxes for anyone making less than $400,000 a year. He is committed to that. Um, but he has been committed to raising taxes um, at the top to make sure that we can pay for the things we need. So that's one part of the question is revenue. And then the second part is we need to be making the investments that are going to uh, allow our economy to thrive and allow our communities to thrive. And again, you know, you think from clean energy to what we need to be doing in early care and education and, um, you know, all the things that we need to make sure that our infrastructure is up to the standards that we need for the 21st century that, um, you know, especially as we're dealing with more heat, more hurricanes, more um, uh, weather damage and the like, um, you know, I, are we making sure that we are making investments that secure our future? So I think the question that I would pose back is, you know, I think we are trying, but we could do, we need partnership uh, uh, with Congress to make sure that we are raising taxes at the top in the ways that we need to. Um, and then we need to make sure that we are fully accounting for the benefits of um, these investments over time. And if our conversations are always just um, focused on the here and now and aren't thinking about what it is that we're going to gain from that, then mm -hmm. we're losing out. I mean, I think particularly in a lot of the supply side elements that we need to be investing in. Mm -hmm. I have a, a really thoughtful question from one of our subscribers, Dane, uh, and here goes. He says, it seems there's a paradox of conservative aligned voters in the U.S. Is it accurate to say that Republican voters in economically marginalized states, at least since Reagan, have consistently voted against their economic interests by avoiding the left and siding with the right? Could we, given everything you're describing about rebalancing, expect an economic realignment on the right towards greater state intervention, maybe even towards Bidenomics? One of the things that um, I'm very proud of with this president is his, his complete, deeply rooted commitment to getting things done and understanding that we live in a really big country with a lot of people with a lot of different viewpoints. And, um, you know, the the bulk of the Invest in America agenda was passed in a bipartisan way, the bipartisan infrastructure law and the Chips and Science Act. And that is very important. It's also when you get on that invest.gov map and you look, those investments are happening all across America. They're not happening just in blue states. They're not happening just in red states. They're happening everywhere. And that's really important. We're one country. We have a, a national economy. And making sure that we are bringing people along is imperative. Um, whether or not, you know, how people feel about that, I can tell you in my own life, um, in my travels through uh, the South and the Midwest, what I see, what I've heard are people who 
um, uh, well, some of whom I knew were Trump voters, really excited about the battery plants that have been announced or starting to break ground to be built in their communities. They see what that means for their community. They see what that means for jobs, for their kids, for their friends, for their families, for themselves. And that is focusing on meeting the needs of people where they are. So that's all I can say to that. Heather Boucher, you talked about uh, many points of view in America. Thank you for engaging with mine and those of our viewers. Thank you. My pleasure. And that was Heather Boucher, Chief Economist of the White House's Investing in America Cabinet. Remember, you can take a look at who we have coming up on our website, foreignpolicy.com slash live. Subscribers can submit questions in advance and help frame these discussions. Sign up, use the code FPLIVE for a discount. And share your questions with us for the AMA I mentioned earlier, podcasts at foreignpolicy.com, or you can go to our website. That's it for this week. I'm Ravi Agrawal. I'll see you next time. Hi, I'm Annalise Riles, professor of law at Northwestern University. I'm also an anthropologist and the host of a new podcast, Everyday Ambassador, where we give you the small tools that make big change. The idea for this show has been a long time in the making. I actually remember the exact day I started thinking about it. It was March 11th, 2011. I was in Japan conducting research on the financial markets of Tokyo. All of a sudden, I heard a loud rumbling sound and the room started shaking. Everything came crashing off the shelves. I looked out the window and I could see the skyscrapers swaying so much that they looked like they would touch. And then the sirens started going off. A tsunami was on the way. These were the harbingers of one of Japan's worst ever disasters, the meltdown of the Fukushima nuclear power plant. The Japanese government now says two reactors are in partial meltdown and four more are at risk. The meltdown completely turned Japan on its head. I saw hundreds of stunned office workers covered in dust, walking down empty train tracks to get from the city to their homes in the suburbs. Electricity was out, internet, cell phones. Supplies flew off the shelves of stores. Geiger counters became an in-demand item, which is never a good thing. Living through a crisis of this magnitude was an inflection point for me. To prevent the next Fukushima or any of the other crises we face today, we'll have to work much more effectively across silos of expertise and national boundaries. And we'll need to harness the wisdom of everyone, from local fishers to nuclear physicists, on how the world really works and what happens when things go awry. Using this approach, I've gone on to spur countless innovations in global policy. And that's what this podcast is all about. Everyday Ambassador peels back the curtains of high-stakes leadership and gives everyone backstage access to the most powerful methods of diplomacy. In each episode, we'll break things down into deceptively simple moves that everyone can make to help build a more peaceful and sustainable world. 
like giving a gift. You want to make it tasteful. You want to make it thoughtful. You thought about the other individual. You thought about what their likes and dislikes are. Or creating a fiction. Taking on a fictional scenario and a role outside of the one that you occupy in your day-to-day -day life allows you to think through what you would like to have done differently. Or just taking the time to have fun. Trying to see this as more so building long-term relationships that are going to be helpful uh, down the line when negotiations are a bit harder, as all negotiations are. Each week, you'll hear surprising stories which reveal the moves you can make to change the status quo, to find ways to connect and move things forward. So join me and become an everyday ambassador. Coming to you this spring on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen.